Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today I'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Secretary of State Blinken heading to China in a few days to try to repair dangerously frayed relations between the world's leading military powers and meet with his Chinese counterpart and possibly Xi Jinping. Joining us is Lyle Goldstein, who is a professor at the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs at Brown University, where he researches the costs of great power competition with both China and Russia in association with the Cost of War project. He also serves as director of Asia Engagement at the Washington think tank Defense Priorities, which advocates for realism and restraint in U.S. defense policy. Fluent in both Chinese and Russian languages, he has written or edited seven books on Chinese strategy and is currently working on a book that examines the nature of China-Russia relations in the 21st century. Then we'll get an assessment of the likely jury pool for the Trump prosecution, having majority of Republicans and Trump supporters since the swing state of Florida has turned red with the Democrats hoping a new generation of young activist leaders like Congressman Maxwell Frost will revive the party and reverse the GOP gains. Joining us is Laura Rodriguez, Vice President for Government Affairs at the Center for American Progress. Previously, she was a senior advisor to U.S. Senator Bill Nelson of Florida, advising him on Latino policy outreach and media. She was also the chief of staff for the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute and was Deputy Assistant Secretary for House Affairs at the State Department's Legislative Affairs Bureau during the Obama administration. Then finally, with today's funeral of Silvio Berlusconi in Milan, we'll look into comparisons between the populist scandal-plague Italian leader and Trump, as well as the close friendship the media mogul-turned-political leader had with Putin. Joining us is Alexander Stiller, who is the San Paolo Professor of International Journalism at Columbia University. He is the author of Excellent Cadavers, The Mafia and the Death of the First Italian Republic, The Sack of Rome, How a Beautiful European Country with a Fabled History and a Storied Culture was Taken Over by a Man Named Silvio Berlusconi. And his latest book is The Sullivanians, Sex, Psychotherapy and the Wildlife of an American Commune. We will discuss his article at The New Republic, how Silvio Berlusconi wrecked Italy and, sort of, America. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. 
And joining us now is Lyle Goldstein, who is a professor at the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs at Brown University, where he researches the cost of great power competition with both China and Russia in association with the Costs of War project. He also serves as Director of Asia Engagement at the Washington think tank Defense Priorities, which advocates for realism and restraint in U.S. defense policy. He's fluent in both Chinese and Russian languages and has written or edited seven books on Chinese strategy and is currently working on a book that examines the nature of China-Russia relations in the 21st century. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lyle Goldstein. Yeah, so nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Lyle. And you were recently in China, and when you were driving in a taxi cab from the airport into Beijing, the taxi driver, and taxi drivers are often a good kind of thermometer, if you will, for what's going on in countries. Uh, the taxi drivers ask you where you're from, and you say the United States, and then the first thing he says is, are we going to go to war with each other? Now, that is a very, very un- sad and frightening fact, is it not? How pervasive do you think is that concern amongst the Chinese people? Uh, it's definitely there. Um, I, I, I wish that was the only time I heard that, but uh, there were several times during the trip where I got that question, and uh, people do seem uh, very, very concerned. And, uh, you know, you you feel the, the tension of, Unquestionably, uh, and uh, I think the really, uh, you know, I, I've been to China dozens of times, although not for a while because of the pandemic. But uh, this really definitely was the darkest sort of mood I encountered, certainly on U.S.-China relations. Well, Secretary of State Blinken will be going to China in uh, on the 18th and the 19th, and today, Wednesday. He did have a conversation with the Chinese foreign minister and expressed the importance of maintaining open lines of communication. And apparently on the Chinese side of the call, it was a little tense with China's foreign minister, Quinn, saying that the United States has got to stop interfering in China's internal affairs and stop undermining China's sovereignty. What do you think he means by that, Lyle? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you know, Foreign Minister Chin Gang, he's, um, you know, I think he's come out of the gate pretty tough on on uh, the United States. And, of course, this, this is kind of an echo of the uh, defense minister, the Chinese defense minister, uh, Li Shangfu's uh, also uh, kind of standoffish position at Shangri-La, where, where Defense Minister Li said, you know, he wasn't interested in talking with uh with our uh, Secretary of Defense, uh, Lloyd Austin, which, you know, I think was regrettable. But, uh, you know, I, I, I feel uh, uh, certainly given my trip, you know, very that the Chinese are uh, uh, very angry really about, um, well, a host of issues, but, but principally uh, their focus, as always, is Taiwan. And uh, they, they think... Um, that the United States is sort of uh, playing games on Taiwan. And, and in their words, uh, you see this a lot in the Chinese press, kind of using, ta- they say, using Taiwan to contain China. Uh, so that's kind of their dark view. And, and uh, you know, I will say I heard this, uh, well, we've heard this a few times, even from President Xi himself, but the, the term uh, 
that China is preparing for the worst. And I, I fear that that uh, is an ever more uh, pervasive outlook in, in Beijing and throughout China. So and, and of course, I hear that in Washington, too. Uh, it seems we're preparing for the worst, too. And I, I you know, to me, that is uh, shocking and terrible. And we need to uh, and I, I'm very glad that the secretary of state is, is finally going. And uh, this this is indeed an important moment. Well, of course, China does not have freedom of the press, right? So attitudes are the attitudes that the government imposes on people. And they have the most ubiquitous surveillance uh, of their citizens, I think, of any country in the world, do they not? True. Very true. Uh, so, you know, to me, that's another reason to, to get over there and hear what people have to say. I mean, as I traveled around, I did hear some, you know, quite a few discordant voices and uh, uh, also, you know, more than a few complaints about the party's heavy hand, especially with the pandemic uh, restrictions, which really were, were uh, very tough on the Chinese people. But I would caution that, that I think this attitude on Taiwan, the kind of bellicose uh, sort of leaning of, of Chinese opinion is, uh, I'm afraid it, it's quite uh, widespread there. But, but I agree, it is, it is hard to tell. It's just this is something that um, is uh, brought up so frequently in the Chinese political spectrum that, you know, I think it, it, it uh, has a tendency to sink in to, to their thinking, especially among, you know, people who follow uh, foreign policy and defense policy. Well, is there any way, though, to reverse the fact that, as you've just pointed out, that this is across Chinese public opinion, that uh, they're taking the hardline stance that, that we're going to be reunited with Taiwan one way or the other, either peacefully or through force? And it seems to me that prior to Xi Jinping coming along with a more assertive and perhaps militant approach and with wolf warrior diplomacy, etc., do you agree, Lyle, that it, had they followed the previous path with guarantees for Hong Kong and, by extension, Taiwan, and worked with the Kuomintang Party, that in Taiwan they may just have been able to make a peaceful deal? And unfortunately, at this point, it doesn't look possible. Well, I do agree that uh, 10 years ago, things were looking a lot better. They really were. And, uh, you know, I think that reflects a darkening of opinion uh, in Beijing. Uh, you, you're certainly correct that uh, the issue of Hong Kong has kind of played into this, and I fear that it has sort of poisoned the well in terms of, uh, you know, there was a hope, I think, that, that this, um, you know, model that, that Deng Xiaoping came up with this, uh, in Chinese we could say, equal liangzhi, meaning like one country, two systems, that 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 was workable, but I think you could almost say both sides agree that that system is, is unworkable now, um, and that in a way is sad because that it seems to me was definitely a uh, you know a, a maybe the only viable path to to kind of um, you know mitigating the tensions here. Uh, so, you know, look, I'm not altogether pessimistic because I think the costs of war are so. Uh, so obvious to to all sides, um, and, and I also have long maintained that uh, you know there are reasonable compromises to be had. And in fact, you know, it's often forgotten that the uh, president of Taiwan 
Myeing Joe met with Xi Jinping. They had a very amicable meeting back in 2015. So that wasn't, you know, that wasn't so long ago. So, I mean, I, I think there could be a way back to, to that more uh, relaxed um, cross-strait dynamic. Uh, it's going to take a lot of diplomatic skill to get back to there, though. And, and I think the U.S. has to be cautious. That's um, I favor um, taking a very cautious uh, policy here because I, 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 I am concerned that China is, uh, you know, they're very focused on this and very serious about it. And I, I really um, am very concerned that this could lead to a war. Well, indeed, you've got warships on both sides, you know, bumping up against each other and aircraft almost colliding. It's not a good situation, although I guess it's somewhat encouraging that I think it was maybe it was the Chinese military leader, uh, the Chinese defense minister, who recently said that a war with the United States would be a complete catastrophe, as it clearly would be. And, the, you know, the Seventh Fleet could be, and all the, these massive, expensive U.S. aircraft carriers could all be sunk very quickly, and nuclear weapons could be broken out at any moment. So it's a complete insane idea of China and the United States going to war. I mean, from your visit to China and your understanding of Chinese attitudes, they don't want a war, right? Well, that's right. Uh, they, I mean, I hope they don't, they want, don't a want a war. And, and I think, you know, it's fair to say that the Ukraine war has also been a kind of, you know, a window into how how terribly uh, wrong that that uh, aggressive wars can go and, and that or any war. And, and that uh, indeed, um, you know, uh, things often turn out differently than one expects. I mean, that said, though, I must say, uh, you know, China does feel increasingly confident in the military arena. Uh, they spend a lot more on their military than Russia ever did, uh, or at least in post-Soviet times. And and indeed, uh, you know, Taiwan is much smaller than Ukraine. Uh, so, uh, but the bottom line, and I think that that Americans need to understand, you know, Taiwan is 160 kilometers from. From China, it, it, at the same time, it's about eleven thousand kilometers from San Diego. So, you know that, you know, if you understand the implications of geography for military strategy, you realize that that really China does hold the military cards here, and and therefore, you know, we need to be cautious and and do everything we can to help diplomacy succeed here. It's true, though, China does not want to fight a war over. So let's turn to your, your specialty with relations between China and Russia. There's some interesting stuff happening. For example, senior Chinese officials have been meeting with Russia's Prime Minister Mikhail Mishustin, and that apparently has really irritated Putin. What do you make of that? Well, you know, Mishustin is, is a very interesting character, and I think he had quite a successful visit when he was in China. And I think, you know, the reason he was sent was straightforward is I think that that uh, the Russians may be a little disappointed that um, that China has not kind of stepped up in, as a to support Russia's war that China has been very cautious about sending weapons although they have sent components as we know well um, uh, and so for that reason I think Mishustin was dispatched uh, he's sort of you know, known as the uh, the economic maestro uh, for Russia, and therefore uh, 
you know, I think uh, the Kremlin is hoping very badly that the economic, that, you know, this, this, they can lean toward the East, that, that China can help uh, lift the Russian economy. Um, I'm not really aware of these reports of tensions there. Generally, Mishustin and Putin are uh, not in lockstep, but, but Mishustin is kind of a technocrat. But I, I could see that, um, uh, that uh, you know, there is, I think, some frustration in Russia that China has not um, stepped up more forcefully to, to back the Kremlin in, in Ukraine. Uh, it's, it's been a kind of limited support. Well, we're learning today that the EU has taken five Chinese firms off the sanctions list uh, with Beijing vowing to stop the flow of military goods to Russia, particularly through Hong Kong and some of these cutout companies, provided that the EU provides evidence, which apparently they did. So that would seem to indicate that it's certainly the opposite of what happened with the Chinese ambassador and in France, who made this kind of wolf warrior outburst and was slapped down. And I think he was actually, wasn't he expelled or taken home? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. Look, um, in a way, uh, sad to say that I think China takes a pretty dark view of um, diplomacy with the United States now. But I think they do continue to invest hopes in Europe, that Europe can play kind of a moderating role on the in the um, in global politics, and uh, of course, their their whole Belt and Road project kind of leans toward Europe, right? Uh, and and they ha- have always regarded the Europeans as very strong European partners, you know, particularly Germany, for example. So they want to try to preserve the, the relationship. Uh, Macron had a very, uh, you know, was very well received in China. So yes, I think they're trying to play ball a bit with the Europeans, but that means kind of straddling with Russia. Um, now, I, I think I don't think they're going to go too far down this road. In other words, they're, 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 they want to continue to have strong cooperative relations with Russia. They're not going to jeopardize it. On the other hand, they probably will continue to try where they can to, uh, you know, minimize the flow of um, of anything that looks uh, looks like weaponry. But as we've seen uh, repeatedly, there's, you know, just so many workarounds that it, I think it's nearly impossible to try to stem the flow of um, the components, say. Sure. Well, Lyle, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it, and we'll stay in touch, Mm -hmm. I hope. My pleasure, yes. Nice to speak with you. And again, I've been speaking with Lyle Goldstein, who's a professor at the Watson Institute for International Public Affairs at Brown University, where he researches the costs of great power competition with both China and Russia in association with the Costs of War Project. He also serves as Director of Asia Engagement at the Washington think tank Defense Priorities, which advocates for realism and restraint in U.S. defense policy. He's fluent in both Chinese and Russian languages and has written or edited seven books on Chinese strategy and is currently working on a book that examines the nature of China-Russia relations in the 21st century. We're going to take a B-station break. We're back with an assessment of the likely jury pool for the Trump prosecution, having a majority of Republicans and Trump supporters since the swing state of Florida has turned red. But the Democrats are hoping a new generation of young activist leaders like Congressman Maxwell Frost will revive the party and reverse GOP gains.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Laura Rodriguez, who's a Vice President for Government Affairs at the Center for American Progress, and previously she worked as a Senior Advisor to United States Senator Bill Nelson of Florida, advising him on Latino policy, outreach, and media. She was also the Chief of Staff for the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute and spent five years at the United States State Department's Legislative Affairs Bureau in the Obama administration, where she ended her tenure as Deputy Assistant Secretary for House Affairs. Welcome to Background Briefing, Laura Rodriguez. Thank you, Ian. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Laura. And after Donald Trump was arrested and arraigned yesterday in the Miami Federal Courthouse, he made a stop in his motorcade at the popular Versailles restaurant where he was greeted with an adoring crowd and is that any kind of harbinger of how uh, Trump may be able to attract the Latino vote in this upcoming election where he appears to be the Republican frontrunner? Um, that, that's a really good question and Versailles um, as many folks know is a staple in South Florida politics uh, no matter which party you're running uh, on, which party, Democrat or Republican, if you don't stop in Versailles, you're not doing your job as a politician. Um, I would say that I don't think that it is a harbinger for Latino support, uh, per se. The Latino vote nationally is incredibly diverse. Uh, Miami and South Florida Latinos are very a, a very different constituency from, say, Texas Latinos, California Latinos. And then, of course, we have an incredible um, amount of Latinos in states that folks are not traditionally thinking about, like Pennsylvania, Georgia, Nevada, Arizona, um, uh, even places like uh, Michigan and Minnesota, lots of uh, Wisconsin, states that I think folks don't traditionally think of as Latino targets, uh, but they are there and there is a growing number of them. And the uh, what they care about is very, very diverse and actually a lot more in line with what national voters care about, like the economy. So in 2015, when Trump came down the escalator and announced he was running for president, the first thing he said was uh, he insulted Latinos uh, in the broader sense uh, by referring to Mexicans as rapists and murderers. That didn't resonate across the Latino community? I think that that was one aspect of Trump's message. Uh, however, uh, there is a, a swath of Latino voters that feel that Latinos who try to, or folks from Latin America who try to come in to the country through non-traditional uh, channels aren't doing it the way that they're doing it, right? Or that they did it and that they came with their families. And so I think that that spoke to some Latinos who feel that um, everyone should come in through the same way that they did. Um, not understanding the broader context of the differences in immigration policy, let's say from the 70s, as they are today, um, and the sheer uh, difficulty in uh, getting into this country through a normalized path. 
So just back to the South Florida, Miami Cubans and their support for Republicans over the decades. How do they feel about the flood of immigrants now coming in from Cuba and from Venezuela? Venezuela's lost about a third of its population, and they're fleeing in this hideous, dangerous trip through the Darien Gap in the jungles of of Panama and all the way up to Mexico. They go through the most horrendous gauntlet of abuse and predation, uh, and they get to the United States and they're up against a wall. And, of course, Donald Trump is famous for the wall. So I don't understand how they could support a candidate who is so cruel towards their compatriots. I think there is a disconnect uh, because there is a lot of empathy for immigrants coming from those countries. I think that there is a disconnect in um, how Trump and his campaign speak about those specific groups. And they tend not to, they, I don't know that I've ever heard Donald Trump mention Cubans or Cuban immigrants in his rhetoric, right? He, he tends to either lump them all together and therefore can uh, say, you know, Latinos in general. And so people can say, well, they're not, he's not talking about Cubans or he's not talking about Venezuelans. He's not talking about us. He's talking about those other people. Uh, and uh, I think it's, an, it's a, a smart tactic from uh, Trump and his team, but he tends to not speak about those groups specifically coming over because he knows he's on the wrong side for that. So let's turn to the case now that Trump is facing 37 counts, and many of them under the Espionage Act. And obviously the special counsel did not want to try and change the venue and do venue shopping. He felt he had to try the case where the crimes took place or the alleged crimes mm-hmm. took place, which is mm-hmm. in Mar-a-Lago. And that now, as luck would have it, or Trump's uncanny luck would have it, the luck of the draw was that he ends up, the case ends up being tried by Judge Eileen Cannon, who has obviously gone out of her way to help Trump earlier over the uh, special master. She delayed the Justice Department's investigation of the documents that the FBI had gathered. So, and she got slapped down pretty harshly by the uh, 11th Circuit's Court of Appeals, which is very conservative. So, what's your sense then of of a jury pool? Are there is it a foregone conclusion that you'll have Trumpsters on the jury pool? I don't know that it's a foregone conclusion at all. Um, there, of course, there is support for Trump uh, in the area, but I, I, I would not uh, ever think that, that you couldn't find jurors that are completely impartial here. West Palm is, again, it's a very diverse area. Um, and it actually trends pretty blue uh, in the in the political spectrum, and so I think that there, I think that they're going. There's the challenge is going to be finding not Trumpers or, or Trump supporters versus non-Trump supporters, but um, you know folks that are uh, not kind of extreme on either end um, of the spectrum, because Trump obviously uh, elicits strong feelings on both sides. And so I think the challenge is going to be folks who are 
able to uh, look at this with fresh and um, unbiased eyes. But of course, there's a lot that Judge Cannon could do if she is as partisan as she appeared to be the last time around in jury selection. So do you have any any sense that there's any way she could be disqualified? It's a heavy lift. It's called mandamus, and it's not used very often. Incredibly heavy lift. Um, I think that would be very difficult. I do think that she is going to be under an incredible amount of scrutiny, uh, much more so than uh, she ever was before uh, in, in the, you know, in the procedural uh, piece where she, where she was involved in the case before, whereas procedure on investigation, this is a very different, this is a very different circumstance that she's presiding over and her ability to rule fairly is going to be under incredible, incredible scrutiny. And I, I would think and I would hope as an officer of the law that she's going to you know, follow follow the law as, as closely as she can. Um, and if not, I think she's going to have, um, she's going to give the prosecution a lot of ability to kind of challenge her. And she's not going to want to have that drama in her courtroom. Well, we see whether what happens over... Evan Corcoran's testimony, the Trump's lawyer, who Trump told, you know, don't I don't want anyone touching my boxes, including you, and why don't we just mm-hmm. ignore the Department of Justice? And then he then set about having his body man, Walt Nader, move all the all the boxes with all the classified information in them into a special storage so that Corcoran wouldn't be able to uncover them, and that's admissible under the crime fraud exemption. Mm-hmm. So if she strikes down Corcoran's testimony or makes it inadmissible, that would be the first clue, right? Yes, I think we, we could see that, of course. You know, I, I'm not a lawyer, so unfortunately I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert on what she may or may not be able to do in that sense. But I do think that even without that one piece of evidence so incredibly compelling, there are so many other areas where the Jack Smith can, can hit Trump and his behavior. This goes to where, to the original point of this, which is this was brought, he brought this on himself. Had he simply turned all of these boxes over, it would have been the end of everything. And he would be sitting at home uh, without, without this hanging over his head. Uh, The fact of the matter is that the jury saw so much evidence, uh, the grand jury, excuse me, saw so much evidence that they were able to indict. And I will say also that the fact that there is no gag order, um, that there was no gag order placed on Trump or anyone else to talk about this. And he continues to publicly impugn himself legally in many ways. Um, You know, he's just creating more evidence for the prosecution. So it's, it's the gift that keeps on giving. Well, he certainly uh, went ballistic at Bedminster um, mm-hmm. last night. And it's, it's so obviously what psychiatrists call projection when he's calling <laughs> Biden the most corrupt 
uh, president in history when there's absolutely no evidence to that, where there's just absolutely mountains of evidence that Trump has been a career criminal and possibly even a traitor. So let me just turn, though, to Florida politics. And I'm absolutely puzzled, uh, Laura, why the Democrats have, have lost Florida, at least it would seem so, particularly with Ron DeSantis as governor and a possible presidential candidate. You worked for Senator Bill Nelson, and he was defeated by Rick Scott in 2019. And Rick Scott, of course, is a mega criminal. He Mm-hmm. settled for the biggest, I think, one of the biggest criminal settlements in, in legal history, $1.7 billion for stealing money from Medicare, and yet mm-hmm. he gets elected. And, and one of the reasons I think that Bill Nelson lost was in part because the ballots in Broward County were screwed up just as the butterfly ballots were back in 2000. So what's, what's going on with the Democratic Party in Florida. Are they just getting outplayed by the Republicans and at the ground level? I think that what we've seen the last few years uh, was a party that was doing things the way that they always did things. Uh, and so I think not just in Florida, uh, by the way, but there are other state parties who kind of missed the boat uh, in the sense of uh, not turning their attention to the nastiness and the crassness that was coming from the other side. Bill Nelson always kept kept it classy <laughs> and he always played politics in the in the in the most uh, honest way. And a, I think a lot of career politicians in the Democratic Party were caught off guard of about the disingenuousness and the dishonesty that the Republican candidates would come up with. And, th- and they thought, well, you know, the public knows that that's not true. Uh, but we, we are living in different times. I think what you're seeing now in the Florida, uh, Repu- uh, excuse me, Democratic Party is a facelift of sorts and a changing of the guard with Nikki Fried at the helm. Uh, she just announced a very young active, powerful executive board as well um, that uh, is much more, I think, connected to the younger voters, um, how to reach them. And I think that there is going to be, I think we're going to see a real shift in engagement um, and how early they begin to engage. Uh, All of that, I think, was really necessary you know, some of these lessons learned in the last few cycles uh, were, I'm hoping, were learned, and they are shifting their their uh, direction now. So, is that young Congressman Frost an example of a, of a new uh, generation and new energy in the Florida Democratic Party? Absolutely, and we also just saw a victory in Jacksonville uh, of the mayor. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on her name right now. I think I believe it's Deese. But uh, she, you know, that was an off cycle <laughs> mayoral election, hard fought, lots of money put into it, um, a popular Republican uh, opponent and 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 the Democrat won. And that was that you were starting to see momentum and a shift in energy uh, on the on the state and local level in Florida on the Democratic side. So just in closing, then, Laura. What do you make of DeSantis? I mean, he's, I think Trump's at 60 and he's at 20. 
or something like mm-hmm. that. You know, Trump is just going up in the polls on the Republican side like a r- rocket. Clearly, there's less to meet the eye about DeSantis. He's not a people person at all. His wife tends to have to rescue him from his inability to do what's basic in retail politics, you know, shaking hands and kissing babies. What's right. your t- take on him? Do you think he's a, he's a flash in the pan, or do you think, I mean, if Trump was rational, which he's obviously not, if he gets into too much legal trouble, he might want, he might need to throw his support behind DeSantis in order to get a pardon. So, what's your reading on him? Um, well, uh, having uh, known, and, and this is of course a, a personal opinion. Um, having uh, known his work uh, from the time he was in Congress um, and uh, watching him uh, in his governorship, I think it's very clear that he is a dangerous populist with very little depth. He's got he's a, he's a one note uh, candidate. Um, using the term woke in ways that no one understands anymore, um, but has decided to, quote unquote, wage war on woke. And I, and I think that it's really revealing how um, lacking in any uh, experience in policy or any depth of knowledge about the real issues that people care about. People do not care about the cultural issues the way that they care about their pocketbook issues, and he is, um, I, I, I do not see him coming out of this field successfully. Well, from your lips to God's ears, I say, Laura, and thank you for joining us. <laughs> thank you so much, Ian. Great to speak to you again. And again, I've been speaking with Laura Rodriguez, who's the Vice President for Government Affairs at the Center for American Progress, and previously she worked as a senior advisor to U.S. Senator Bill Nelson of Florida, advising him on Latino policy outreach and media. She was also the Chief of Staff for the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute and spent five years in the United States State Department's Legislative Affairs Bureau in the Obama administration, where she ended a tenure as the Deputy Assistant Secretary for House Affairs. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the comparisons between the popular scandal plague Italian leader Silvio Berlusconi and Trump, as well as the close friendship the media mogul turned political leader had with Putin. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Alexander Stiller, who is the San Paolo Professor of International Journalism at Columbia University and the author of Excellent Cadavers, The Mafia and the Death of the First Italian Republic, The Sack of Rome, How a Beautiful European Country with a Fabled History and a Storied Culture was Taken Over by a Man Named Silvio Berlusconi. And his latest book is The Sullivanians, Sex, Psychotherapy and the Wildlife of an American Commune. And he has an article at the New Republic, How Silvio Berlusconi Wrecked Italy and Sort of America. Welcome to Background Briefing, Alexander Stiller. 
Thank you for having me. So uh, now that Berlusconi has left the scene at the age of 86, uh, apparently there's some doubts over to what will happen with his empire and who his heirs might be. But let's try and assess the damage. And I guess one of the things that seems pretty obvious is that uh, Berlusconi sort of paved the way for these populist neo-fascist criminals like Orban in Hungary and Trump here in the United States? Well, I think what he did was um, he forged a particular political formula that ended up being very successful in which he combined his sort of a billionaire with um, a billionaire populist, a plutocrat with a common, the kind of common touch. He was a very rich man with sort of typical uh, right-wing economic policies that managed to appeal across class lines to working class voters, not so much by appealing to uh, a program, but to his own personal charisma and uh, conveying a kind of sense of authenticity. In a sense, I think he's more like Trump um, than Orban, who sort of has a, uh, you know, a sort of definite authoritarian program. Berlusconi really didn't have a program. He was selling himself, and um, the politics were kind of incidental to it. Um, in that way, um, you know, he's more like Trump, who combines often very inconsistent, uh, you know, bits of, um, you know, free market economics with, you know, protectionism and other kinds of things that are all kind of mixed together. Berlusconi was more similar to that. Uh, but I think the thing that that's really the the thing that he did that was, was sort of brilliant in its own uh, awful way was uh, creating this kind of um, you know billionaire populism, a way in which you could have a rich man's politics that reached across class lines and took advantage of the kind of um, deterioration of traditional parties and uh, class-based parties. But he did bring a lot of well, ultra-conservatives, former fascists, didn't he, into, into government? Yes. Well, what he did, part of his, um, you know, I don't know that that was ideologically driven, but what he understood was that to win um, in Italy's electoral system, he needed to um, bring in two political parties that had been sort of considered beyond the pale. The one was a neo-fascist party, which was then called Alianza Nazionale, and has now been renamed as sort of reborn uh, under Giorgio Maloney, um, known as the party as Fratelli d'Italia, Brothers of Italy. The other, the other political force that he brought into the mainstream was something called the Lega, which originally was a quite radical party of regional autonomy that wanted to break Italy up into, uh, you know, different regions uh, and liberate themselves from the central government in Rome. What was kind of amazing is that these two forces were all, were like bitter enemies and diametric opposite. One wanted to break up Italy as a national state and the other was an ultra-nationalist neo-fascist party. Um, Berlusconi didn't really care about what their political programs was. What he cared about was winning a majority, getting into power uh, and governing. Uh, but when he was in power, he never really uh, governed with any kind of uh, strong kind of political program. Uh, in that sense, he's a bit unlike Orban or unlike even Trump, 
Trump, although I think he's not deeply interested in uh, political ideology, has behind him people like uh, Steve Bannon and Stephen Miller, who do have a kind of ambitious, um, you know, political programs to, you know, dismantle the administrative state or to create a kind of white nationalist uh, society. Um, but uh, that was not really Berlusconi's. I mean, he used various forces, and if those forces happened to be on the far right, that was fine with him. But he was not deeply invested in those kinds of things. So is there some comparison then, Alexander Stiller, with uh, Rupert Murdoch? I mean, it seems that in many ways Berlusconi was more successful than Murdoch in the sense that there were these three state-owned RAI uh, national networks, and essentially he took over the media of Italy. And Murdoch, of course, he's taken over. For example, in Australia, he controls about three-quarters or two-thirds of the press, both television and newspapers, and rails against the state-owned ABC, as he does against the BBC in the UK. So to that extent, you have to suggest that Berlusconi was more successful than Murdoch. Well, he he really did create a power that was greater than anything we've seen in a, a normal democracy. At a certain point, I mean, in in before he entered politics, he managed to create a virtual monopoly of private TV by having three national private TV uh, channels that that basically captured about ninety percent of the television revenue because the state TV, which had an equally large audience, uh, was very limited in the amount of advertising it could run. Uh, so you had what was called a duopoly for a, a period of years where his TV, his three networks and the three state networks had a roughly equal share of 90% of the TV market. Um, when he came into power, when he got into politics, one of the things that people worried about was now he would be, in effect, the boss of the state TV system because um, unlike in some other countries, in Italy, uh, the government appoints the heads of the of the state TV, and Berlusconi was very quick to put often people that had worked for him in key positions in the state TV, so that he had control of almost the entire um, uh, you know uh, TV programming, and he had the largest magazine group, uh, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, um, book publishing group, um, a major newspaper. Um, you know, the biggest uh, mutual fund company. It was it was just uh, power on a scale that's very difficult to, to uh, find an analogy to elsewhere. So another difference then between Berlusconi and Trump is that Berlusconi was a good businessman and Trump is a, a serial much, failure. It's a much better businessman. The other thing, um, since you mentioned Murdoch, that I think is important to uh, mention is that something that Berlusconi did particularly when he decided to enter politics, is that he um, created hyper-partisan media that was in defense and in support of his own um, uh, political project. So the kind of thing that we now see routinely on Fox News and other hyper-partisan right-wing media, Berlusconi really introduced um, in the early 90s as he began to um, think about entering politics. Um, And so you had TV programs that were very, very slanted, that created a kind of alternate reality for his supporters as his, um, you know, as 
uh, corruption investigators began to discover more and more wrongdoing within the Berlusconi empire, his media was constantly pumping out an alternative narrative, um, fake scandals, and um, um, you know, uh, continuing to repeat that there was no evidence of wrongdoing on Berlusconi's part. So you started to have the phenomenon already in Italy that you now have here in a major way, which is that you had a, a highly polarized public that lives in completely different uh, information worlds. So what explains Berlusconi's close relationship with Russian President Vladimir Putin? Uh, that's a really big mystery. I mean, parts of it are are fairly obvious. Uh, Berlusconi was somebody who admired power and admired um, a sort of ruthless use of power. Um, you know, Putin as Russia's tough guy. Um, you know, one uh, rather revealing moment happened when um, Berlusconi was visiting uh, Russia and attended a joint press conference with Putin. And this was at a time when there was still something of a free press in Russia. And a young woman asked a, a rather tough question of Putin. And Berlusconi made the sign of the machine gun and pointed it at this woman and said, you know, ratatata. Um, you know, which was uh, incredibly revealing, as if that was somehow funny, um, that somebody could be wiped out, which of course has happened in uh, Russia many times. Um, so there's that element to it. There's another element that is, um, uh, you know, Putin um, spent some of his vacations in Berlusconi's villa in Sardinia. Um, it's a very strange element that uh, Berlusconi, who was, um, uh, taped during one of his sex parties um, with a, a woman who was a professional escort. And as they were, as he was leading her into the private chambers of his villa, told her to wait for him in Putin's bed while he took a shower. And this is a very strange thing. What does it mean, Putin's bed? Is this the bed that Putin occupied when he came to stay with Berlusconi? Is it a bed that Putin gave to Berlusconi for the purposes he was using it for? There's a, a weird relationship there that we don't fully understand. And the other part of it that I think um, remains a mystery and probably will always be a mystery is, did they have financial connections? It's hard to imagine Berlusconi, who is a rapacious and very shrewd businessman, having constant dealings with a man like Putin who had access to literally billions of dollars in oil and gas wealth and not tapping into that. So whether there are, you know, offshore bank accounts that uh, connect the two of them is something that we don't know. Well, that mystery also applies to Donald Trump. Yeah, I don't know anything about that either. Right. Um, well, it's been going on for since the 1980s, his ties to Russia and, and having Russian uh, gangsters and oligarchs invest in his properties and in his casinos in Lake City. And yeah. even more re just recently, when his uh, Truth Social media outfit was floundering, uh, a Russian oligarch gave an infusion of money. So that's a, still a story that uh, mm. has not been fully told. But yeah. um, in general, though, if, when you said earlier, Alexander Stiller, that there's a similar media space in Italy in the sense that it siloed half the population on the far right and the other half on the, on the left, and they don't talk to each other and they're living in alternative realities, that is clearly the case here in the United States. Yes. Um, 
And is there any indication that this can change in well, Italy and therefore perhaps in the United States? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that um, uh, in Italy, the fact that Berlusconi is no longer as active in political life has probably lessened some of the pressure on um, you know the people working in his media companies uh, to be a bit freer. Um, so that could be uh, promising. Uh, unfortunately, there's a weird sort of combination of lack of regulation and yet tight political control over media in Italy that makes at least television media uh, less independent than um, everyone would like. Um, it's not, you know, it's not as, uh, in some ways, it's less extreme and less hyperpartisan than it is here. I think the situation here is in many ways uh, worse. You may have seen the, um, the, the caption from Fox News when Biden was speaking. Uh, and said something like, here is the dictator, you know, putting his political opponent into prison when uh, on the day that... Um, right, you know, the, the wannabe dictator, right? Right. So uh, that kind of thing, that's, that's I mean, uh, that's kind of the way things were when Berlusconi was sort of at the, in his most kind of shrill. Uh, you don't see that as much on Italian TV, but you certainly do see it here. Um, and that's enormously worrisome. I don't know what one does to solve that in a, you know, in a country that is, uh, you know, has a long history of free press and First Amendment rights. You know, obviously voluntary restraint is not something that means much in the Murdoch empire. And if it did, they would immediately be, um, you know, overtaken on their right wing by, you know, Newsmax and, um, you know, other media of that sort. There's obviously an appetite for, you know, one of the things that we've all learned in the last uh, 10 years or so in the age of social media is that uh, outrage and extreme views travel more quickly and become more viral than, you know, reasoned positions. And that's just uh, something we've only begun to, to grapple with. I think it's possible that in the area of social media, you may see some basic rules being set down that might at least put a few uh, sands in the wheel of uh, the kind of, uh, you know, craziness that we've seen uh, in social media in the last several years. But it's, you know, it's very tricky, the balance between allowing free expression and um, allowing baseless, reckless defamation is a very, you know, is a hard one to, to, to manage. So just in closing, then, the law did catch up with Berlusconi. And it's yet to catch up with Trump, even though he's just been arrested and indicted. Yeah. Well, in some ways, um, their stories are somewhat similar because Berlusconi had, um, you know, something like nearly two decades of indictments and charges and accumulation of, of often um, incredibly damning evidence uh, accumulate um, the bribing of judges, the buying of sentences, um, even uh, one senator admitted to, to taking like $2 million in order to change his vote in order to bring down a government. Uh, but those cases um, got gummed up in the Italian political system, the Italian judicial system, because uh, statute of limitation laws in Italy are very peculiar and they continue to run even as appeals of cases go on. And so many of those cases, he was actually convicted at trial, but then other cases were 
essentially shelved because of statute of limitation issues. Uh, and so he would then be able to say, I was never convicted. I was never convicted, which isn't strictly true. Uh, finally, he was convicted and finally his own personal behavior became so uh, reckless and unmoored from reality with these uh, crazy sex parties that uh, that finally caught up with them. And then there was one case which finally did make it through all three levels of appeal uh, and then basically disqualified him from holding public office for, for several years. Yeah, he got a five-year ban, right? Mm -hmm. What will happen in the Trump case, uh, I don't know. But, you know, one of the things that one has to point out is that Berlusconi, with all of his uh, faults, never threatened the basic democratic system in Italy, never claimed that an election was um, uh, was fraudulent, um, left office when he lost, and never incited um, his supporters to um, engage in violence. Um, you know, we've seen some very strange things in this country in the last few years, and um, they may get stranger as Trump's legal problems get worse. But just in closing, you're not telling us that Berlusconi was a good guy. No, I think, um, you know, the thing that in some ways is maybe most important uh, and most lasting in Berlusconi's legacy is that he was an economic incompetent. He came in promising to revolutionize Italy, to open up its economy and become a, you know, economic miracle worker. And Italy has gone through the you know, the, a very long period of deep economic stagnation in which it's been the slowest growing economy in Europe. And it's really uh, been a disaster for ordinary Italians. Over a million younger Italians have left the country in the last, um, you know, uh, 10 years seeking their futures in the US and Canada in France and Germany, England, um, because they don't see a future for themselves in Italy. Uh, younger people are often living with their parents into their 30s and 40s because they can't raise a family. It's not a good situation. And the, the fault for that is widely shared. But there's no person that bears a greater part of that responsibility than Berlusconi, who was the dominant figure in Italy over the last 30 years. Well, Alexander Stiller, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. Be well. And I've been speaking with Alexander Stiller, who is a San Paolo professor of international journalism at Columbia University and the author of Excellent Cadavers, The Mafia and the Death of the First Italian Republic, The Sack of Rome, How a Beautiful European Country with a Fabled History and a Storied Culture was Taken Over by a Man Named Silvio Berlusconi. And his latest book is The Sullivanians, Sex, Psychotherapy and the Wildlife of an American Commune. And he has an article at the New Republic, How Silvio Berlusconi Wrecked Italy and, sort of, America. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. 
and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by